So a uh, flip phone connoisseur? Professional shock jock. I was going to say face for radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and like guy that won everything in yeah. IMSA GTP and prototype cars. Rob Dyson. If you were going to describe this uh, lunch we just had in one word, what would it be? Competitor. I like it. It's competitive lunch. I like it. All right. He said you got to be, you got to compete every day. Competitor. And now for Dinner with Racers, presented by Continental Tire. With your hosts, Ryan Eversley and Sean Heckman. Placeholder Radio. <laughs> Welcome to yet another edition of Dinner with Racers. <laughs> new season, new podcast. All right. So as many of you know, uh, yes, we do have a show on Amazon Prime, and we did put out several podcasts related to that show. However, we also, Ryan, did a bunch of uh, standalone podcasts. We sure did. I mean, we did something like 15,000 miles over the six-month period while we were doing not only the TV show, but also our podcast. So... We'd like to introduce you guys to a couple more racing characters and personalities that we wanted to sit down and have a meal with. So this next one sort of fits in the sports car legend category. Uh, this guy would be sort of the quintessential gentleman driver, but also somebody who's put a ton of money into the sport over the last four decades. And he's a personal hero of uh, Ryan. Yeah, I grew up a massive Dyson racing fan. I've had their posters on my wall since I was a little kid. So when we were able to get Rob Dyson to come on Dinner with Racers, I was really excited about it. So Rob Dyson is actually part of a very successful family in business out of the Connecticut, New York scene. Uh, his father was one of the more innovative people in the early days of the mergers and acquisitions world. Rob is actually very successful in business in his own right. He did very well in radio. He went on to be on the board of a number of different businesses. But of course, relative to us, he's a guy who has become a staple of sports car racing. Yeah, as a, as a kid, I used to go to all the IMSA races with my dad, and at that point, Dyson Racing had already established themselves as one of the top winning teams and one of the teams that was always going to be in the hunt. And initially, they started out doing SECA club racing, moved their way into IMSA. They've had different programs like Porsche GTP 962s to Mazda prototypes, the Riley and Scott program that was very, very big part of my childhood and just successful pretty much from the get-go. And we were able to talk to Rob about kind of how that all started and, and what got him motivated to want to go racing. So on National Gorgeous Grandma Day, we headed out to the Millbrook Golf and Tennis Club in Millbrook, New York. Uh, we were probably as out of place as it gets. Yeah, we got to sit at the same table that apparently Liam Neeson was sitting at the day before. And uh, there's a bit of a hierarchy on who gets to sit at this one specific table between Rob Dyson, Liam Neeson, and a bunch of these old school you know, members of this country club, which is really interesting because it was just a table. <laughs> there was nothing really to it, but either way, it was pretty cool. And uh, you had a, was it a chicken sandwich? It was a chicken sandwich. Now, some people might think it looked like a really good pizza, but it was in fact a chicken uh, sandwich because mm -hmm. it's a the joke. It's still going. Right. I had a, a turkey club sandwich and it was really good. Now, obviously to get to these different meals and all around the country, we had to have a driver. You know, we can't be doing everything. So uh, big shout out to Michael Avenatti for helping us get there. Quiet down, you two. I'm trying to listen to Migos. And of course, none of this would be possible if we didn't have a, a fantastic vehicle taking us all across the country. What kind of what kind of vehicle was that? Oh, that'd be the uh, Acura MDX. And uh, of course, that Acura was able to safely get there thanks to four very specific tires. Continental tires. Cross contact, Alex. Sport? 
Rob Dyson. Go. Meow. All right, we're going to start in five, four, three, two. How's it going? So we were set up in- How are you? I'm Ryan. Nice to meet you, sir. Good to see you. Doing okay? Just making sure. Yeah. Yeah. We met this weekend. Sean. Sean. Good to see you. How are you doing? Cool. Doing well. Well, here we are, sure. Excellent. Okay. In fact, I can hear you better through this. So, do you know anything about what this is? That's, uh, a, that's a computer. That. That's a computer. <laughs> no, it's a podcast. It's yeah. a podcast, yes, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Fine. So, you started out racing, club racing, basically, and you won your first race? Yeah, I had, uh, I had uh, in those days, the, the ladder, if you will, mm-hmm. in sports cars. I didn't think about doing any cars or... Um, or drag racing, although I did drag a car. Mm-hmm. I had a, I have a, I had and still have a 31. The first car I ever bought was when I was 13. <laughs> My, uh, we, we had a farm. We have a farm up here. I was, gr- I grew up in suburban New York. Okay. In a town called Scarsdale. My mother wisely recognized, however, that Scarsdale was too small for four kids and a couple of foster kids. Sure. So, um, and many others that turned up all the time. <laughs> and so uh, she said, look, we got to give these guys, we got to give them more room because Scarsdale was getting progressively built up with housing projects and that kind of thing. So we bought the farm, and, and that allowed every member of the family. I had, I have an older brother, and then I have two deceased siblings, my younger sister and my younger brother. Okay. And we all could exercise what we were interested in. While also doing a lot of farm stuff on weekends and all summer. Okay. And so um, uh, there was a local farm that had, a, had an old Model A coupe. And uh, for 50 bucks, I bought it. And 50 bucks was uh, kind of all of my pay for working all of the summer at the house, cutting grass and, and sure. all the other stuff. Yeah. And so I was still in the car, and so I started driving that around. And uh, it was just a logical extension, but I never kind of got around to it. Okay. I always had something, other things to do. And uh, I finally said to my wife, I said, look, why don't we, why don't I just do it for one year? Sure. I'll just do it just for one year. I want to see what it's like. Like Chris Economaki used to say, what's it like out there? I wanted to see what it was like out there. Okay, yeah. And I was pretty good mechanically. And in those days, if you wanted to run... If you wanted to race a car, you had to have a car. And if you wanted to race it, you had to make sure that it worked and all that. So I bought a 510. I bought a, a 510 from a guy out in, out in Chicago who was getting out of racing. Oh, sure. And, um, and that's what started it. So you do, in those days, you did two driver schools mm-hmm. under observation. Then you had to do a minimum of four regionals. Yeah. And you were observed during those four regionals. And actually, it was not a bad system because it it separated the 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 the, 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 the wannabes and think they want from the people that really got committed to it. Yeah. Further, it also enabled them to bounce uh, people that were clearly whack jobs and uh, <laughs> and, 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 and incompetence. So sure. it kind of separated people. Yeah. I thought actually, even even now, there is some validity to what they were doing mm-hmm. even now. And it actually redounded in a couple other things when IMSA uh, and some couple of IMSA drivers that had big cars and big wallets but no ability. But we'll get to that in a minute. Yes, we will. But, um, <laughs> but the thing, uh, 
I, 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 the reason why I got a Datsun was is that they seem to have, this was before websites, but they seem to have a number of cars running as I was following it. So I went in grad school, I went over to a, an event, a regional event that was called the Fun One, which was the, the weekend or two after the U.S. Grand Prix, which okay. was being held then sure. in the 70s. And I talked to a guy extensively about a 510 that he had. And we talked about it. And I, he said, look, you know, you can get parts. And, uh, you know, stuff is available. Right. Then there was a very famous HP book put out by the, about the 510 done by BRE, Brock okay. Racing. Mm-hmm. And that was John Morton's kind of star turn. Um, and And that's what started it. So I said, well, that's why I picked up Datsun. And it just worked out very well, and mm-hmm. one thing led to another. You know, it's the old thing. Like AJ says, he says, uh, "Quitters never win, and winners never quit." Right. I yeah. guess that was one of my problems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so going back a bit, your your family, uh, your dad Charlie, worked with the Roosevelt administration. Well, no, th- this is a little bit of a misnomer. Okay. My dad worked for the Roosevelt administration because he was in the United States Army during World War II. Okay. He um, he was conscripted, if you could call it that. In fact, mm-hmm. you could call it that. He was conscripted by uh, by the federal government to. Uh, uh, he was an accountant by training. Sure. And the the U.S. government had hired Price Waterhouse to um, set up the books for lend lease. You have to understand the structure then was isolationists, Republican and Democrat, mm-hmm. all wanted, all wanted to stay out of Europe's problem. Sure. Roosevelt and a lot of other people knew what was going on and they could see it. But Roosevelt couldn't sell it to anybody. He sold the draft in 1940. Mm-hmm. But this is 39 and 40. My dad was conscripted with five other people to set up the books for Lend-Lease. Lend-Lease was set up as a, hey, look, if, if, some, if your neighbor's house is on fire, you're going to lend them your garden hose. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it was. That was the structure of it. So these five guys started doing the purchasing for the Army Air Corps. In those days, it wasn't the Air Force. It was Army Air Corps, Corps with yeah. one, one setup. And so um, he was. That's, had, that's his connect with the Roosevelt administration. Okay. But somehow it morphed into that he worked in the Roosevelt administration. Okay. Well, he did. So did uh, you know six million other troops <laughs> right. and yeah, uh, right. you know a whole right. lot of other people he in the Pentagon. To be the guy in charge. At the time. So it wasn't uh, quite. Uh, it wasn't quite that uh, elevated. Okay. Right. right. He's not sitting there rubbing side elbows. by side. But, that's just, right. That was the boss for the but, company. He but was my father, that. due to his wartime service, got the second highest medal that's ever awarded to a civilian. Yeah. He got the Distinguished Service Medal, right, which is the second highest award. The only one that's higher is the Congressional Medal of Honor, right, which you only get if you're a soldier in combat. Yeah. So they they didn't order they didn't they they you know it was it was a very high honor. Mm-hmm. He did a great job, and then he came back and left became a civilian, right, returned to civilian life, and started a business uh, many years later, right. Which I now run. He was also awarded the the Order of the British Empire. Is that right? Yes, he got yeah. an OBE. Yeah. Um, as a result of um, some trade work that he had done. Okay. With England in the sixties. Sure. So he's a very established guy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so, how does the company begin for him? What was what was the business? And to, to make this clear, so prior to him, sort of the the 
the sort of the real family beginnings in terms of the the establishment that you guys are today really started with your father Charles. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Dad started it, and it was uh, it was an interesting uh, thing. I mean, uh, most kids resist it. Um, I didn't like it uh, when I first. I think we we both had to grow up, mm-hmm. and um, so I started my own business, figuring that I really ought to test myself. Okay. So I bought a radio station mm-hmm. in uh, in Poughkeepsie, New York. I thought it was a very good business because I had done it in college. I see. I'd done college radio, mm-hmm. not just at the <laughs> not just at the college, but I did a local at a local radio station okay. as well in in Marietta, Ohio. So I bought this radio station and started running it. And one thing led to another, and I bought several other radio stations. And at one time was the had more radio stations than any other person in the country. <laughs> and then I sold them to a to a roll up. They rolled them up. In those days, they eliminated regulation on the ownership of radio stations. Okay. Which I thought was a mistake. In fact, I even went down to Congress and said, testified in Congress, I said, this is bull****. You can't really, you shouldn't really do yeah. this. Mm-hmm. Just to put some clarity, back in those days, you could, it was like, you were allowed to own like five or something it like that. It was seven, seven yeah. AMs, yeah. seven FMs, and seven TVs. And okay. the idea from an FCC standpoint, which is, and we're seeing the effects today, is that no one controlling arm could control the yeah. message of, That's of right. the news and that was being look, fed out there. Look what we've got now. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> Commercial radio is, has so been... I don't want to get into it, but yeah, it's yeah, a commercial yeah. race is sure. so eroded. Anyway, so right. yeah. so um, so from from the the start of of running the Datsun, it was just uh, to me it was just an interesting thing to do. It was just me and my wife, and then I had one of the kids at the farm, and I had another guy from that worked at a local gas station, and uh, you know we'd work and that kind of thing, and it just one thing led to another. You mentioned kind of resisting your father a little bit, so your dad kind of initially got going in the finance world um, like he's labeled as the pioneer of the leverage buyout that's right right that's right whether he was or not i'm not sure but yeah, uh, take credit. You know, that's a, <laughs> again cool that's say. that's the popular with him but but right. but he did use assets of a company right to to uh create a uh, to create a uh value because he didn't have the money right so he would basically if he was going to buy out a company we were just talking about this with skip barber yesterday because that's how Event of first uh, iteration of Skip Barber got sold was in a leverage buyout, but basically you could you could take the the assets of a company and sort of establish a value based on that, right? And then use that to work as your collateral for a loan. That's right. To buy that's it exa- out. That's exactly what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's exactly what it was. Right. Yeah. Um, but you said you resisted this, or that you like in the sense you wanted to do your own business, or you well, didn't care for the finance. I think world? it's a com- I think it's a combination thing. Okay. It's um, tough when you don't have a in any taking over any family business. It's always tough to. Uh, you want to be something beyond your dad. Well, it's it's tough because first at my age then, which was 23, 24, 25, what the hell do you really know? Right. And what can you bring to the party? Yeah, or 40. And what have my what have my experiences what's the value of that? Well, not much. Right. So, yeah. I decided to test myself by saying, "Look, I'll take a little bit of money, leverage it, and I bought this radio this radio station in Poughkeepsie, New York, a little AM radio station that had a a, uh, a an FM with it. Okay. And the FM was pretty irrelevant in those days. And it wasn't until '76 that I started saying, "Why can't we do something with this FM?" Mm-hmm. 
Okay. And that's what started. And then I started buying FM radio stations, specifically right. from people that didn't realize the value of them. Right. I mean, now AM radio is... Yeah, it's virtually dead. It's uh, Rush Limbaugh. Yeah. Whereas FM radio is really... Where, yeah, the, where, the, where, the where if there's any money are, made in radio... Yeah. Well, I'm not really sure about that. They, <laughs> you know. But uh, so it wasn't some sort of like, you know, you're a late teens, early 20s, in the late 60s, early 70s, and there's that sort of rebellious attitude a little bit or especially at that time there was a resistance you know among younger people to what the financial world was all about there was none of that kind of teen angst i'm not going to be like my dad kind of thing no i thought my dad was a square guy i thought he was straight yeah okay and radio was sexier and radio was something i knew yeah Yeah. right you know you you, you go you kind of go with what you know yep but from that little small little entity you know, you learn a lot when you got uh, a payroll of uh, twenty five hundred bucks on a Thursday, and you only have eighteen hundred in the right. in the I bank on on Tuesday. Yeah, right. you, you learn how to make collection calls and yeah. ask your. That served you well in motorsports. You know that gets that gets you going. So, yeah. when you sold all the radio stations, how many did you own approximately? Well, I did it, and I did. I organized. I did four radio groups. Okay. And um, the last ones I sold were the ones that were local here. Okay. So, at what point before you started club racing? At what point was just the idea of cars or motorsports in the on the radar for you? Well, I think the deal is is that when I was growing up in Scarsdale, down in in our block. There was on a, a block of scars on our on our block in, 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 in the tough. neighborhood. Right. Um, there was a a guy next door or down the street that had a fifty white mercury convertible with lakes pipes and a continental kit, hmm. red upholstery. And whenever he pulled out, I looked at that and said, "Man, what a car!" You know, Lake's pipes with the rumble. Yeah. And he'd, he'd, we had a dog in the, in the you know, we had, you know, you have all the kids, you have the dog. Mm-hmm. And the dog would <laughs> would chase after cars, but this guy would, he the, the dog would start to go, and he'd stop. And then the dog would stop, and then he'd go <laughs> a little, and the dog would start, and then he'd wait for the dog to back off and then go. And I thought that was pretty cool, too. But, 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 um, it just kind of, you know, you just gravitate to it. I was a mechanic kid. I like pulling stuff apart. And but racing wasn't in the family. Like, your dad didn't take you to races. Or wasn't well, a, a in car point of fact, well, let me start. The first race I ever saw, the first car mm-hmm. race I ever saw in person was at Dover Drag Strip in Wingdale, New York. Dover Drag Strip was a small quarter-mile strip, and it had a grand opening in 58. And a good friend of mine's dad said, come on, boys. Let's go down to the drag right. strip. So we went down to the grand opening. God, that was really cool. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, nothing proceeded. Really that. cool. Yeah. yeah, when you had no basis to right. know what to expect. That so, was the yeah. first kind of organized race I went. But my dad had a business out in uh, out in uh, Indianapolis, and at the time, he had I don't know whether he had I don't think he had a heart attack. It wasn't serious. That's serious. But I think he got a stomach grip and was put in the hospital mm. while he was out in Indianapolis during the summer, sometime around July. 
And my and my mother said to my older brother and I, let's go out and see your dad. He's in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And left the other kids, uh, my younger brother, younger sister, and the other kids uh, at the house. And so we went out to Indianapolis. When we got out there, walked in, dad was sitting up in the hospital, and, uh, you know, he looked fine to me. And right. I, but the guy that was running the business then said, come on, boys, I'll take you around Indianapolis. Let's go see the Speedway. If you've never been on the bus going around the Speedway. Even then. Right. Not having any conception. I mean, I knew about the Indianapolis 500 because, you know, you, you listen to it on the radio. Mm-hmm. You take a ride around the place and you sit back and say, holy cow, this place is huge. Right. Yeah. Then you go to the Indianapolis Motor, Motor Speedway Museum, which yeah. was in those days on... 16th Street. Oh, okay, yeah. sure. Outside yep. on the outside, where now the 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 track offices are, mm-hmm. but that was mm-hmm. where the track offices, the ticket, and the offices were. But it was also a museum. Sure. And you walk into the museum, and the first thing you see is is a uh, one of Roger Ward's or somebody's roadster sure. from the early 50s, pearl paint, chrome exhaust. Now this is a kid that had been working on, you know. Lawnmowers, yeah, and, right. Uh, you yeah. Know, mom Anything washing the, mom's car, yeah, there. around the farm, yeah. So here we go, and we see this thing, and I'm saying, "Holy cow! What a sight!" And that was, to some degree, kind of an epiphany that, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do, I don't know where it's going to take me, but I'm definitely going to get, I'm going to start reading more and that kind of thing. Yeah. And in those days, you had uh, car and driver, yep, road and track. And it was before I knew about Speed Sport News. So I had car and driver and road and track. And we got tickets for the 62 Indianapolis 500. We got 11 tickets <laughs> because uh, my dad wanted to bring a bunch of people that work for us out there. We still have those tickets. No way. We still have those tickets. In fact, my guys now use them. We use them every year, all 11 of them. And same place, same spot, Paddock Penthouse. You can see the back straight. Still see the back straight. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. pretty cool. So you end up racing the Datsun 510. And at first, it's you and your wife. I had a good friend, and I had him, a good friend who worked at a local car dealer. And I said, hey, Kevin, I need, a, I need a guy to help me out. Right. He says, well, I've got a guy. He's great. Pat Smith, he's a BOCES automotive instructor. Okay. Pat came down and uh, to this office and at the BOCES thing, and we sat down. And I said, look, I'm working on a car this weekend if you want to come out. So we came out, and he started looking around, and his wife was there. And he said, uh, I said, you, hey, look, if you want to help, I mean, I'm going to pay you. You know, you want to do it. We'll do some races. It's a little traveling. I got a my mother's station wagon right. that I think I'm going to trade in for. A st- I'll, I'll get rid of it and get a Suburban. Okay. And I got the trailer out there, so let's go. So um, Pat took off his coat and said, well, let me let me see if I can help you out a little, uh-huh. bit, little bit this afternoon. He said to his wife, why don't we try to get sandwiches? And 28 years later, he retired. <laughs> right. right. But Pat was the, uh, was the missing ingredient. He yeah. really yeah. was. I mean, I'd won, I'd won a lot of regional races. Yeah. But Pat was a missing ingredient. He um, intensely intelligent. Ironically, story of stories is when Pat was younger, we're on a state highway. It's not 
you know, we're on a state, the farm is on a state highway, and he was, he was up there. Pat apparently had run out of gas in a car right in front of our driveway. And so my dad saw him there and said, do you need any help? He says, I ran out of gas. And we just come on in. And we, we had a gas pump at the farm for all the tractors. And so five-gallon pail, you know, five-gallon, you know, one of those tin five-gallon things. Put it in Pat's car. Pat went, Pat, can I pay him? Get going. Yeah, right. Be a kid. Right. Wow. Before so when Pat... Pat drove in. He says, you know, I got some gas from your dad here. <laughs> and that started kind of saying. Like, this is supposed to be a is, thing. Uh, this, yeah. Yeah. You, know, you, you know, you could write movies about this yeah, or right. have some kind of spiritual Serendipity. connection. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's the way it happened. That's so, so that's awesome. the way it worked. Yeah. So Pat started. Pat started yeah. with me, and we started doing national race. It was just me and Pat. Mm-hmm. And um, he'd, he'd, he'd work during the day in the summer because he wasn't teaching. And I'd work at night. So right. anything that wasn't done by him, I'd do at night. And, you know, often we'd get ready to go and we'd leave on a Friday night, drive literally all night. Yeah. And in those days, it was Nelson Ledges and Summit Point and all that. Right. Great experience. Then I had a guy on the radio station as we started going, running again, running nationals. Guy, I walked into the studio one day to introduce myself because I'd never met this guy. He was a summer guy, the filling in the guys on vacations. Okay. And I said, he, and he looked up at me when the record was playing. He said, you think Mario's going to win the championship this year? <laughs> I said, right. I, yeah. uh, I think he's got a possibility. I think his car is almost good enough. Yeah. This was, I think, 77. I think it's almost good enough. And I said, hey, you interested in racing? He said, yeah, I'm, I subscribe to Formula Magazine. I said, Formula Magazine? <laughs> I said, you, me, and the 500 other right, people. Right, right, We're keeping the place going. <laughs> so so this was a guy named, named Dwayne Smith, Dewey Smith, and uh, he was a student at Mar- Marist College, a local college, where I was a member of the board of trustees. And he was working for us part-time mm-hmm. on the radio. And I said, well, shh. Why don't you come to Why don't you come to one of the races? Yeah. So he came over to Lime Rock, which was a Memorial Day weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, not Memorial Day. It was Fourth of July weekend, mm-hmm. and that was when a national race happened. That's when Tullius had the British Leyland yeah, cars, right. and Sharp had his stuff, and it was really great. That was kind of the leading edge of racing. Was was yeah. uh, before IMSA. IMSA was starting to kick around. Right, but that was the spot. But yeah. they and so um, Dewey came, and we ran the race, and he did kind of a result sheet at the end and handed it to us a result sheet that had start start time weather mm-hmm. temperature you know like you were reading the you know the grid uh, formula magazine yeah. what the grid would be you know fastest qualifying mm-hmm. <laughs> then you had the results the points and all this stuff so i said Shit, this guy's got to come along with us once yeah, in a while right, right. if he could fit it in because i, I, I yeah. didn't want to take the money out of his pocket sure i said but, so he came to start a couple of couple races mm-hmm. and ultimately i hired him on yeah and he handled logistics and, you know, arranging hotels and that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I was doing it on the phone at night. And uh, so Dewey joined us. And um, so it was the three of us. Right. And the way it would work, we'd work on the car during the week. And in those days, B-Sedan. And this is all a side project. I mean, you've got your day job, so to That's speak. right. Yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. To, so yeah. did Pat. And so did everybody else. And right. so, in point of fact, to Dewey. <clears throat> right. So we would leave at 5 o'clock, 5 or 6 o'clock. 
to drive. And in those days, the interstate highways weren't fully constructed. Oh, sure, yeah. Right. You know, Route 84 didn't exist. Route 84, 81, right. nothing. So right. you're driving banging, banging roads. So right, on. right. And so um, we start talking, and we talk, and then about an hour in, it would just become silent. And we were just putting in the miles. We know exactly how this goes. <laughs> Put in the miles. I mean, this is probably true of a whole lot of yeah, us. Yeah, right, right. You know, you're driving along, and it's just silent. Mm-hmm. And it would be, hey, you need gas? Good, let's go. <laughs> and and one thing led to another, and we just started doing more races, and we started doing a little bit better, and uh, started winning some national stuff. And, and it was great racing. I mean, qualifying was really important. Yeah. Racing was really important. I mean, it was a great collection of guys. So how do you make the jump from doing these club races to Porsche 962s? Well, the interim, um, I said to guys, I said, look, I think we ought to move up. We, we, won, the ch- we won the national championship in 81. We were 200 SX that the factory gave us. In, 80, in 82, we ran... But my heart wasn't on it. Yeah. I said, guys, we ought to move up. And Bob Aiken is a good friend. Was a, His dad and my dad were great friends. And Bob said to me, he said, look, stop club racing. You've done enough in club racing. Right. You've been there from 74 to 81. That's more than enough time. So I said, okay. Well, the Pontiac came out with the Firebird. And I said, this is a great car. <laughs> Joe Huffaker. Yeah. Huffaker, Joe Huffaker sure. had, had uh, developed one and was racing it. In club racing. Yeah. Pontiac factory deal in club racing. Well, like an idiot, <laughs> I, I didn't, I went to a local circle track guys in, in Waterbury, Connecticut, and said, guys, can you build me a Pontiac Firebird uh, GTO car? Absolutely. Well, they did. Mm-hmm. Circle track brakes, chassis that wasn't quite as stout as it should have been. Sure. But, you know, it complied with the rules, but the bodywork is just a disaster. But by then, <laughs> I had Pat... And Boz. And then he ended up working with you for, for is he still? Boz just still working. Yeah, I was going to say, I've seen this guy around for forever. Anyway, we raced a GTO car. Yeah. The reason why we got into GTO, the Firebird, I said, well, look, let's move up. So we built, or they built, this Firebird. And I went and tested it at Lime Rock. I said, well, okay, it's, it's a car. I got it. So off we went. The car was not as good as my Datsun because it just wasn't the same. It was Clearly faster, but it was just very different. Well, what we found after a while was the roof. You had to have run a stock roof and the stock roof, and it kept cracking right by the roll cage. And Bozzy would keep repairing it. Bozzy did all the body work. I said, Boz, what's that crack coming from? He said, I don't know. It just appears after every race. I said, the goddamn chassis is flexing. And that's what it was. Well, the first race we did in the car was the Memorial Day IMSA race. Memorial Day. First time out. We had tested at Lime Rock a couple of times. And a guy named Ken Slagle, who was a, 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 a club racer of note, a couple-time national championship in, in deep production, he was my co-driver. So uh, Ken started, and he ran for a little bit, and then I got in. And a guy who was our big guru, it was a three-hour race, so my guru... In my first driver school at Lime Rock, or my first club racing in Lime Rock, was a guy named Alan Jones, who yeah. was a who was a Porsche guy. Okay. Crossed up, and I slammed into him hard. 
I thought I would. I thought I killed him. Right. I hit just in the side of him on the short shoot. I think they call it the Andretti straight now, but it's the short shoot mm-hmm. on the back of the just before you go to the uphill. I pulled into the pits. Body work went flying. They did it in heat, so they the heat ended. Now I was running the car, and I went to the officials. Says, "Look, can I run?" And just to show you how rules have changed, they said, "Um, is it a performance advantage?" You know, I, I said, "I don't know. We're running about 16th or 17th in the race," and they said, "Roger Bailey." That's where I got to know Roger Bailey. Roger Bailey said, "Yeah, run it." So we ran the rest of the race without front body work. And that was my first IMSA race. I will tell you, it was a real experience race with the big boys because, boy, were they quick. And the cars were really quick. So I said, whew. Anyway, so that car, we, we raced. We then went out and raced at Elkhart Lake. Now, mind you, we had a closed trailer and a Suburban holding a closed trailer. And all of us were sitting in the car, and we went out to Elkhart Lake in a Trans Am race. Same car. We didn't do anything. And we ran the Trans Am race, which in those days was not a pit stop race. None of pit stops. And a valve spring broke. But I I started way in the back and got up to seventh. And this is when all of them were there. Gloy and all these guys. I said, you know... Maybe I could do something with these guys. Maybe I could do something. So we got the car ready and ran. I don't know where we ran. We ran in Michigan, a couple other races. But the big race that we had that was really important, kind of, if you can call it game-changing, unbeknownst to me, we got out to the 500-miler at Elkhart. The 500-miler at Elkhart. I said, good, let's go to a track. We've raced there. And... Elkhart was one of these meccas. You know, you heard about the June sprints yeah, right. in, 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 in club racing. Mm-hmm. You know, that was kind of, whoa. Yeah. Wow. June sprints. We never went out there because it was too far away. We didn't have the time to go. Anyway, so um, we ran a 500-mile, Ken and me, and it was I had four guys, and we did not have center lug wheels on the car. Sure, right. So when a pit stop came in, it was kind of like, uh, okay. And we didn't have air jacks. We just jacked it up with a regular jack. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it was real barnyard when you think about it, because yeah. that's a point of fact where it was. That's yeah. a point of fact where it was being done. Yeah. And we finished due to attrition mainly, but we we drove hard. We finished third overall. Oh, cool. Yeah. And the only car that was ahead of us was Don Tevendorf's uh, GTO mm-hmm. Nissan. So is it at this point where you're like, all right, I'm ready for a 962 now? No. We raced another year, <laughs> okay, banging around, and I said, look, guys, <laughs> again, Bob Aiken, I said, look, maybe we, ought to, maybe we ought to step up. And so I started thinking about marches. I mean, so I, call, I mentioned it to Bob. Mm-hmm. I called Bob. I said, hey, can I come down? He, I'm in Poughkeepsie. He's in right. Austin. I drove down. Yeah. Sat down with him. I said, look, what, uh, I'm thinking of moving up. He says, good. Uh, I'm, I'm talking to March. He says, look, nobody collects marches. People collect Porsches. Uh, <laughs> says, you, that logic today still yeah, holds. Do you, smart do you, guy. Guy to Porsche. Yeah. Do, you know, do you know Albert? And I said, I, I, I barely. He yeah. says, let me call him and have me have him call you. Great. So I'm at the radio station and Al calls me. He says, hey, I understand you want to you get into real racing. <laughs> I said, yeah, what's an opportunity? He says, well, I think... 
I think I can get you a car. He says, Bruce Levin wants to get another car. And he's not going to run two cars. And maybe I can get him to sell the car that he's got to you and get it done. This is 83. I said, well, let me know. He says, I think he's going to want to do Daytona in the old car, and then he'll start the new car probably mm-hmm. shortly thereafter. Right. I said, okay, well, let me know. He calls me back about three weeks later. He says, Bruce wants to talk to you. So I got on the phone and talked to him. I said, say, look, I'm, I'm interested. Mm-hmm. Can we do the deal? He says, do you have the money? I said, yes. Do you want it in a check, or do you want me to wire it to you? Mm-hmm. He says, no. I'll take a check. Don't worry about it. Yeah. He says, but we're running Daytona. I said, okay. He says, if you're going to buy it, you buy it after Daytona. I don't want to sell it to you before Daytona. Right. If we wreck it, I don't want to be sure. giving you the money back. I don't want to be giving you the money back. So, okay. So, they ran Daytona, and they ran about 14 hours, and they had a wheel-bearing problem. Okay. And they pulled out. And the car was in Atlanta. Okay, so we're sitting there with this Porsche, and I'm sitting back saying, we can't haul this thing in a closed trailer with a Suburban. We got to get a we got to get a tractor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he got a guy to help us out to go down, and he came with us. And Bill and he shifted off, and we put the we bought a car from v, we bought the trailer the truck and trailer from VDS. Uh, Franz Weiss uh, and and um, and I I made a deal with him. We got the we got the truck and the trailer, and. He says, look, I'm going to throw in a whole bunch of stuff that we're never going to use. Mm-hmm. Well, what he threw in there was about 20 radio sets. Oh. Well, holy f- we got radios now. <laughs> 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 Big time. Yeah. yeah. So we did that. We got a paint scheme put on the car done by a guy named Dick Yagami who had joined us. Dick was an industrial designer. He came along, and he started hanging out with us. So we had a, you know, we had a good crew, maybe seven guys mm-hmm. then. And um, true to what Smitty and I always did. Even if you're going fast, try something and see if you can go faster. We tested down at Savannah, and we ran there, and uh, that was my first time in the car, and I was so impressed with how it worked. Mm -hmm. It was just a beautiful car to drive. Right. Beautiful car to drive. But it was great kind of looking out and seeing just a little bit of bodywork and a lot of pavement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I said, this is really something. Not thinking that if I go into that fence there, <laughs> right. that fence is going to be mighty good. You yeah. know, you don't, you know, you yeah. don't, <laughs> you know, you don't think about that. Anyway, so um, uh, we tested down there and we learned a lot. Alvin Springer from Andile came down. Yeah, he had told me we ran at Miami. That was the last race we ran with the car. We ran at the, at the, the street race down in Miami in the in the Firebird, and um, Alan came up. I didn't know who we were going to get to do engines. Sure. And Alan Springer came up. Polbert must have said, hey, this guy's for real. Yeah. Well, he, he, Al knew us because he was running a D production 944 with Doc Bundy. Yeah, yeah. So Alan comes up and says, look, Creepy Crawley is pulling out. They had one Daytona in 84 mm-hmm. in a march with a Porsche engine. Yep. He says, Creepy Crawley's out. I can take care of you. Okay. I said, uh, okay. And... That was in Miami. Mm-hmm. Then when I got the car, I called him on the phone. I said, look, we've got to learn more about this thing. Can you, are you available? He says, yeah, I'll come. I'll come to the, te- I'll come to the test. Well, he knew because he had run his own car. Yeah, right. You know, the Andi guys had run their own car too. Yep. So he told us, you know, what torque pressure to put on the, the wheel lugs, which were, you know, that big. 
and and uh, gave us a lot of hints and all that, and mm-hmm. just so off we went, and we just we went down a, a couple of the guys went down to Holbert's shop, and uh, they came back. They, Holbert said, "Come on down, and we'll have a couple of our guys uh, walk you through mm-hmm. what we do to prepare the cars." And Smitty comes back. I said, "Did you learn anything?" He says, "No, but they think we did." <laughs> We were polite. So uh, I said, okay. And so off we went. We just started running with those guys. Yeah. And this was in the days. It, what I object to, I think, a little bit is this driver classification. So so, so let's not go there yet because okay. it's a very hot topic with me. I've been very vocal about it. And Chris actually was like, you need to talk to my dad about this. Anyway, so, so but anyway, we'll so we started running and and – the, the the first run we made, which was in at Lime Rock, uh, we we knew Lime Rock. Drake did it, and I was going to get in the car. But Smitty said, if you get in the car, it's going to take you at least two laps to get up the speed, mm-hmm. and we'll lose the race. We got a shot of winning it. I said, well, look, our agenda is to win races. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was a guy that was not used to running a whole season anyway. Yeah, I had no illusion of where I fit in the whole program. Keep him in. So I stood, had my helmet on, opened up the door, closed using the radios. They yeah. were using the radios. Yeah. I opened the door, and then I closed it and got back over the over the thing. Yeah. The announcers were saying Rob Dyson's in the car until they realized that it wasn't Rob Dyson because I was standing on a pit wall. Yeah. Anyway, so Drake goes and wins the race. Right. You win your first. And race. Dewey, Dewey, who was a real smart guy, a guy from my you know, rural background from Iowa, the great sense of humor, he says, you know, maybe we ought to quit undefeated. <laughs> anyway, so so the next race was uh, after that was Mid-Ohio, and that's when I first got in the car. Mm-hmm. And we raced and ran. I can't remember how we finished. Fourth. Fourth? Yep. Started and fifth. That's pretty good. Yeah, damn good. First, first time in a car, yeah. I felt I – felt you know, I didn't feel, ironically, I didn't feel scared. I just felt, geez, I don't want to screw up. Mm-hmm. But again, if you do enough racing in, in, in cars that are really inadequate, like this Firebird, which was, was junk. Right. If you do a lot of races in that, you get into a car that works, you say, hey, this is, this is great. Yeah. You know, it, it, it turns, it stops, it, it brakes, it accelerates. Right. Yep. So, so that kind of got me going. So, uh, so we started doing races in '85. Uh, we did. Uh, we won. Uh, we won there. We won at. Uh, we won at Elkhart. Budweiser came along and yep. said, "Gee, we need a we need a thing for Bobby Ray Hall. Can we do Bobby Ray Hall?" And they were going to pay us. And mm-hmm. I said, "With Drake, yeah, sure. Why not? Let's do it." And it wasn't a lot of money, mm-hmm. but uh, I thought, "Gee, that would be kind of a nice thing to have Ray Hall." Yeah. And so we did, uh, we did uh, Elkhart mm-hmm. and won it right. in the rain. As it started to rain, Drake did a terrific job. He was right up front. Bobby got in the car, did a great job. Mm-hmm. And we won the race. And then we went to Pocono, a bunch of other races. I can't remember. Yeah. But we went to Columbus, and they said, we want to put a pro driver in at Columbus. Mm-hmm. But we don't want you in the car. I said, "Look, I understand. Don't worry about it." But Who's because this? I'm not in the car, who's saying this? Is this Budweiser? Budweiser. Okay. They, but yeah. I said, "Look, if I'm not going to be in the car, I want a little bit more money." Than yeah. I said, "Otherwise, I'll repaint the car and forget about it." Yeah. They said, "Well, we've got a big brewery there, and we want to have representation in sure. the race." So I said, "Okay, well, good." I said, "They, they, they said, but Bobby can't do it." So they mentioned a couple other drivers who will name remain nameless, and I said, "No." No, we're not going to put them in a car. 
what about so I said, no, forget it. I'll tell you what, I'll, dri- I'll drive Columbus. Yeah. Never having done a street race before, I said, well, it might be interesting. But I said, forget it. Yeah. And they said, well, who do you suggest? I said, there's only one guy that I can think of, and that's Price Cobb. Yeah, he did Atlantics, didn't he? I said, yeah. And he also did some other racing. I said, he w- ran with Gordy Offdahl in a big Firebird GTO car when I was racing GTO out uh-huh. of Michigan. Price and I went to driver school at Bond Rants at, at Ontario Motor Speedway for five days. Uh-huh. So I called him up. He said, we're going to shape you. And he says, I'm going to shape I said, come on up to Watkins Glen. We're going to put you in the car at Watkins Glen. The three, you, me, and Drake are going to drive. Watkins Glen had just reopened. Mm-hmm. Just reopened. And the track had deteriorated greatly. And... I got in the car first to drive around. I had a lot of miles in Watkins Glen do the club racing. We ran there. We ran there at least twice a year. <clears throat> and so Price got in the car and got out literally weeping. Mm-hmm. I said, what's the matter? He says, I'm not sure I can do it. Huh. I said, I got news for you, Price. You're going to do it. <laughs> because if you don't do it, then I'm screwed. Yeah. So you and Drake... And me are going to do this race. I don't even know what the duration of that race was. Sure. Uh, the Watkins Glen race. Yeah, but I got hard. in. Drake started. I got in and Price finished it up. Mm-hmm. Price got out of the car. I said, huh? You all right? <laughs> he says, yeah. I said, good. Now we're going to go to Columbus. So anyway, we went to Columbus <laughs> and Price and Drake. And Price won us the race. Yeah, they win. He said it was under a yellow. And they were going to release the cars at the tail end of the race. And Smitty says, when that pace car pulls off, because the pace car pulled off late, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to wait, and then I'm going. Yeah. That's what he said on the radio. And I, so off we went, and we won the race. Yeah. Then we went, did a couple more races at Pocono or something. I can't remember what other races. And the finale was down at uh, Thanksgiving, 1985, Rayall and, and Drake, and that's where we won the Porsche Cup. Right. We won the North American course. He was Porsche the first course. first American to do that, right? We were the first American yeah. to do that. Yeah. And so uh, that was quite quite a high honor. And then we went over to Stuttgart and yeah. all that. And it was just, uh, you know, it was, and, and it was, you know, I said, you know, I, I, you know, look, it was never easy. I had no illusion that, hey, we're on easy street now. I mean, it doesn't work that way. I mean, I knew I knew enough about life and business and the uh, way things happen. It, mm-hmm. it, it just doesn't work that way. You got you to gotta compete every day in whatever you're doing. So, um, 86 came around, and uh, we went down and did, uh, we did Daytona. Bad. Then we went up to Watkins Glen later on in the season, 500-miler at Watkins Glen, and Drake, 75 miles in, was told to come into the pits, went by, smashed into two, uh, a Camelite's car, put, and put him in the hospital. Jeez. And I fired Greg on the spot. Wow. I said, this is, this is not working out. This guy is a really is just taking himself or something too seriously. Best decision I ever made because then Price and I did a whole bunch of races together. <laughs> and we went out and ran Riverside. We ran uh, Sears. We ran a whole bunch. We ran a lot of great races. Laguna, right. we did a lot of great races. It was just great. Price was great with the crew, great mechanic, wonderful guy, great sense of humor, and could really get the job done. So now this is leading into probably my what I was most excited about talking to you about uh, April of 1987, you hire a young James Weaver. I knew James because he had worked with Bob Aiken. Mm-hmm. And Bob said, and I had raced against James at Riverside. 
and earlier that year and and just met him in passing. Yeah. But he had a very nice manner about him. Mm-hmm. And I called Aiken. I said, Bob, what's the story with this guy? And he said, Weaver, the best. Mm-hmm. He was being, uh, he was kind of a, a Yokohama guy. Okay. And and uh, there were several tire manufacturers in IMSA in those days. Yeah. Yokohama being one of them. Bob had Yokohama tires. <clears throat> and so um, so um, I called him up and I said, okay, can you do it? He said, sure. So James came down and it was, you know, Price and James, it was just like peas in a pod. Yeah. They both got along great. They they just clicked. Yeah. And they both had enormous respect. Price was still number one. The setup was Price's, mm-hmm. which was a setup that I actually liked. And so it was a little softer. The car was a little more supple. Okay. Um, um, and it worked. But because uh, we had a couple of race, race wins together. But um, but the big thing was is that uh, Weaver just got in and did the, did the job. And that was his first big car win anywhere. Yeah, you guys won together. Or that, that race they won. And yeah. the RC Cola came around because Phil Conti, who was running a, a Buick-powered march. Yeah. Couldn't make the race himself either. And he said, look, I can't make the race, but I got this RC thing, and I got to keep that going. So can I put the sticker on your car? I said, yeah, uh, we're not going to have time to Yeah. And I said, how much? He said, well, how about this? And I said, "Eh, could it be a little? He said, yeah, I'll do more. So Phil Conti, uh, in essence, funded that weekend Mm -hmm. with RC Cola money. Yeah. And um, so it was a good good deal all around. Yeah. And uh, off we went. And then I said, oh, well, looks like I'm sort of replaced. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, you know, that's kind of the story of my life. But <laughs> I figured, look, our agenda is to win races and all that. But I did not get out of the car completely. I mean, we raced, right. uh, the three of us raced together in a number of races. Yeah. So it was just, uh, you know, it's just, if you kind of open your eyes and look around, you could see some great opportunity. And that's kind of life yeah. in general. Um, it's uh, it's typical in this kind of racing for you know if you're the source of funding behind it obviously the greatest joy usually is in the driving side of it so like I have clients in IMSA that you know I think if if the time came where the guy funding it chose to no longer drive the team would just dissolve because it it wouldn't be worth it to him but so you you still found satisfaction in having a team operate even if you weren't the guy behind the wheel that's because when I got into running a car yeah I never had any illusion of sponsorship Right. I didn't really view it as a way to make a living. Sure. I made a living being a business guy. Right. No, but, but that's kind of my point is, is so if you take that attitude, it's very common for the attitude to then be like, well, I'm going to drive because that's the fun part because right. this isn't a business. This is something that I'm doing as a as sort of hobby is the wrong word, but is something that's just a, a source of entertainment for me. So if you're not driving, why is it fun anymore? You know what I'm saying? Because like, it's, uh, I drove enough in any one season. Okay. That I could do it. I couldn't okay. make every race. Right, right. I mean, I was building my businesses. Yeah, no, understood. And my businesses started to expand and other things. And so all of a sudden, um, you know, it's kind of like, hey, um, I can get down there Saturday morning, but I got to leave right after the race. And in those days, only commercial travel. So you're only going to a commercial. Oh, you were slumming it. So, uh, <laughs> well, Eastern man. Airlines in a lot of places. So anyway, because that was the, that was a southern, southern stuff. Sure. Anyways, um, so, um, <clears throat> um, I don't know. I just felt that, that that it was it was fine just as long as I could get in the car and feel that I was doing a good job. So if you did a um, races, uh, 
it was it was fine. Um, and I I viewed the challenge was just, let's not be one hit wonders. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't just have one good year, one good race. You know, we, we could have retired undefeated. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That. Dewey was onto something. Yeah. 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 That nine six two had never won a race. Yeah. So with us, our first race and it wins. Yeah. So all of a sudden you sit back and say, geez, maybe we ought to, you know, let's just keep going. Mm-hmm. Plus, I, 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 then we, then we, then I said, look, let's get a, let's get a second car. Mm-hmm. And that's what started running second car. We didn't add anybody to the crew. We didn't add any more pit equipment. <laughs> and we put two cars in the same truck. And ran two cars yeah. with the same guys, and off we went. And I would drive with a variety of different people. Mm-hmm. Nobody paid. Right. I didn't want anybody to be paying. I did one paid driver deal, which I'll tell you about in a minute. <laughs> but I didn't want to. I didn't want to rely on anybody. Rent riders. Right. Because I didn't want anybody coming in and saying, "Hey, I paid for this. Sure. It's not a hotel." <laughs> this is not, uh, you know, you know. This is we're not a catering shop. I have a very similar client, and it's very much this is what you enjoy doing. So I brought, uh, you know, I brought various guys in to, yeah. to, to drive a Vern, Vern Schuppen, for yeah, instance. Absolutely. And Vern and I did a couple of races and had a great time, and it was still great friends. And uh, so, um, uh, so I was able to race against my car periodically, uh-huh. and that was that made a, made a lot of fun. And the fact we could do it with the same number of guys yeah. was really kind of an extra bonus. And the guys, you know, I said to Smitty, can we handle it? He says, yeah, I think we can handle it. And occasionally we'd, we'd, we'd hire a couple guys to come in weekend stuff. Yeah, right. You know, guys would show up for weekends, and it all seemed to work. Mm-hmm. And it just evolved. Why 16 and 20? Well, it started off as car number 18. Uh-huh. I lived on, and when I lived in Poughkeepsie, when I first came back here from grad school to the area, the car that I bought, the Datsun car, was number 18. And I lived at 18 East Cedar Street. Okay. So it all kind of worked. Yeah. Easy numbers to paint. Yeah. So if the body had to be repainted, you could do it, you know, nothing fancy. So that's how it started. It started at number 18. Mm-hmm. Then when we started running another car, we started running one car, 16, and another car, 18. Mm-hmm. What happened, the evolution of going 16 to 20 was that the guys would look down the pit lane and they wouldn't know whether it was 16 or 18 coming in. Ah. So <laughs> Smitty said, we've got to change the number to 20 Yeah. because we've got to be able to differentiate the cars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's how it evolved Simple to as that. 16 yeah. and 20. Because that was obviously your famous, very famous numbers. for. So team. we stayed 16 and 20. Yeah. But it started off at 18. The yeah. first, first races we ran with the Porsche were 18, mm-hmm. car number yeah. 18. Right, right. At any point, was there a specific like budget cap or term to this in your own head? Like, once I exceed X amount of spending, or this is a three-year deal for me, and then I'm just going to see what I want to do? No, I never thought about it that way. And the reason why, it's kind of like uh, it goes till it stops. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that, as in, until you... We were doing a, we were doing a, we were doing a, you know, it was great. We were doing well. We had a good reputation. We, people appreciated what we were doing, not only the fans, but... The organizers or promoters, mm-hmm. uh, we got to know all of them. We got to know all the suppliers. 
Uh, and stopping would mean you just hit a budget point where you just didn't like spending it or that it just wasn't fun anymore? Well, it was kind of like uh, I just felt that we didn't do any racing in 1992. Right. 1992, we did no racing. I took the guys out. We went out to see. Uh, we went out to, I took a bunch of guys. We went out to Indianapolis to see the 500. Um, I did... Um, I did some, uh, in 89, we did IndyCars, and I did some broadcasting with ESPN, doing a couple of uh, sports car races. Yep. Mm-hmm. I can definitely hear the radio and, broadcaster and, voice. And, so. and uh, started doing some IMSA races, and I did f- five or six of them. <laughs> um, when we did the IndyCar thing, I knew that this was a whole other world. Yeah. The Chevys had just come in, and we were running a, uh, a year, a, a a a, uh, a Lola, uh, an '87 Lola, from Dick Simon's shop, and Ari Leyendijk had driven it. And when we got the car, and Dick Simon couldn't have been a nicer guy to work with, right? And when we got the car, we could not believe the level of maintenance on the car. Yeah, I mean the level of lack thereof, no maintenance. Yeah. And I said to the guys, I said, "This this goes to show you the difference between lucking out and not." killing a driver with the way you they mm-hmm. put the bolt nuts and bolts together to doing it right. Yeah. And it was a pretty interesting lesson for my guys when they started pulling apart. I said, Jesus, this car is terrible. Mm-hmm. And it shows the level and the ethic that we had of, of car prep and, and maintenance and that kind of thing. You know, if a bolt looks marginal, please throw it out. Sure. It's a titanium bolt. costs us 100 bucks. Well, if we put the car in, wall, somebody yeah. gets hurt. Lot of sh- or if nothing else, we got to repair it. Mm-hmm. So let's make sure if it's margin, we throw it out. So, um, so we did '89, and then we went back and started running again. We ran the Porsches again, James and Price, sometimes James and me. <clears throat> and in 1992, we did not. Do, I did not do any races. Well, and to put some some context, I mean, by nineteen by time nineteen ninety two hit, you know, the nine sixty two as a program was very lifed out. That's right. The, I, by that point, the Nissans were good, and yeah. then then the Eagles came in the next Toyota, year. Toyota's yeah, gone. and also like you guys had modified the nine sixty two ten different ways to try to make to try it competitive. Up, we, did, we did. We did. In, yeah. in fact, we the we were the only we gave um, um, Porsche's last big car win in the United States. Yeah, and we also gave them. A car that was extensively modified by us, and they really were not all that interested. Huh. Right? They were not that interested. Well, and yeah. they had. I mean, at that point, they they were lifing out their IndyCar deal. They were looking back at F1. There was yeah, just a right. lot of things right. going on with Porsche. But basically, it was you know, uh, by the time 1990 hit, it was an all Nissan kind of deal. They were dominating, and then yeah. by that point, the Toyota Eagles came in. So it kind of was pointless to be running this heavily modified 962. We beat, we beat Jeff Brabham at, uh, at to Tampa. We were running, James was running right on his tail in Tampa, and he wrecked the car, and James came across the line on the last lap. Mm-hmm. And that was the last major win for Porsche yeah. in the United States. Yeah. In that in that era. And there was, there's rumor that you guys were working on a Mazda program, but I don't know how much truth there is to that. But it just didn't come to fruition. We were working on a we were working on a Mazda program. Then we were talking. Then we started talking. Actually, before Holbert got killed, which happened in '87, '88, we were thinking of building a whole new prototype to replace the 962. Because uh-huh. Holbert was seeing what was going on. Because the Jaguars were showing up. Nissan was starting to wake up. Yeah. And these were you know major things. And Holbert said maybe we ought to get a design group together. Yeah. And I said sure, Bob and I'll get into it. Let's yeah. go. Yeah. And I sure we can talk Bruce into it. And we were seriously thinking about it. Yeah. 
So kind of like a privateer group building a Porsche prototype. <laughs> well, in point of fact, a bunch of guys did do that. I mean, Jim yeah. Busby, Jim Busby right. contracted and started building a carbon fiber tub mm-hmm. uh, built by uh, by Jim Chapman, who did a phenomenal job in England putting this stuff together. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is you sit back and say, Jim Chapman, who the hell is he? Well, he was the one of the he was the crew chief on Clark's Indy winning car yeah. in 1965. <laughs> you know, you sit back and say, and the other thing is when I when I think back on it, you know, Dan Dan Gurney was running a, a GTO um, Toyota, and I can remember, you know, Dan was one of my heroes. So here I am seeing him, you know, every other week, 17 races, yeah. and having a sandwich with him in his truck. You know, uh, and and just relating to him and just talking to him all these years, and it, you know, it was just, uh, you know, but surreal. I mean, it was just. Uh, but when he showed up with those Toyotas, the first year they weren't they weren't much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then the history. <laughs> yeah, racing is interesting. It's challenging, and the demands that are made on you, it's mentally physically and emotionally demanding no matter what your role is on a race team it's got all of those three and you have to have those three and that's why i stopped driving i stopped driving because i was just not into it mm-hmm. and when i rode with when i when i drove for max crawford in a daytona prototype where we were running mm-hmm. the alms mm-hmm. and i did that just because i wanted to run and we ran yeah. a, i ran a bunch of races of facts i was up at watkins Glen. I was driving. All these young guys were running. I was clearly the oldest. And I was driving along and driving quick enough, um, but not quick enough in my opinion. But the other thing is, when I turned the car over, I got out of the car and I said to Max, thanks. This has been really great. And a guy came up to me in the pit and said, is that the last time you're ever going to race a car? And I thought about it, and I feel exactly the same way then as I do now. I said to him, well, let me put it to you this way. I've done more races than I'm going to (laughs) do. And as I was driving home, I felt really good. Yeah. Because I was clearly putting myself at risk, other drivers at risk. Not risk of, of getting killed or anything. Sure. I just wasn't doing the kind of job that I should have been doing. Right. You know, and they, these guys were running the season, and they wanted to win a championship, yeah. Yeah. and I clearly wasn't. Yeah, yeah. You know, right. I was an add-on. Mm-hmm. Do I miss it? To some degree I do. At the end of the day, uh, um, I just found that I just found it was a life's great experience. Le Mans was – I'm glad I did Le Mans. I did it just, just before my 40th birthday. Right. I kind of celebrated my 40th birthday going on Molson Strait in a light misting rain. <laughs> at, we had the slowest car on the racetrack down the straight. Okay. The big car. We were doing about 220 to 222. Yeah. And every everybody else was doing, the Jaguars were doing almost close to 240. Jeez. So cool. But right. we had higher downforce, so our lap times were just a little bit off. Yeah, right. 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 A little bit off those guys. Yeah. And um, that was a great experience. I was invited back. The Jaguar guys uh, had called me and said, gee, will you want to come on over to Le Mans, do it again? Yeah. And I said, no. <laughs> nope. I finished. Got to do the final 20 minutes of the race when all the 
flaggers are out on the waving to you, congratulating you on finishing the race. And mm-hmm. I, I wept in the car for I don't know how long That's for cool. having survived. Yeah, right. One guy died. Yeah. Guy got killed. A couple of guys got badly hurt. And uh, it was just one of those great experiences. And one of my directors said, gee, uh, I'm glad you did Le Mans. Don't do it again. <laughs> well, your business directors. Did, did, you, did you enjoy it? I said, yeah. Did you finish? Yeah. Was it a great experience? The best experience after the birth of my two kids. He says, good, don't do it again. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right, so we do a uh, pass-along question where our previous guest asks the question of the next one and so on and so forth. So last night we had dinner with uh, Skip Barber. Great and friend. Yeah. yeah. Well, he, he had a, a poignant question for you. Yeah, so he wanted to know, uh, why didn't you buy Lime Rock? Why didn't I? Yeah. Said you're a perfect candidate for it. You could afford it. It's close to home. You have history there. I think it's because, uh, it again, it takes a, a specific style of, of management. Mm-hmm. It's clearly a great racetrack. Yeah. A Lime Rock is a great racetrack. You could see that the day before yesterday, how great a facility yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, frankly, I never thought about it. <laughs> well, maybe, that may be yeah. one of the main yeah. reasons. I was busy. Yeah. <laughs> so tonight we're having dinner with Will Turner, who's a longtime BMW team owner and driver and competitor. Any question you would ever want to ask Will Turner? How did he handle um, getting out of the car and becoming a car owner? And what considerations did he go through to make that commitment? Great question. No, hold on, just excuse me. <laughs> this is the safety call. Yeah, get him out here. Pull the, pull the shoot. You have a flip phone. I saw that. Oh my goodness. I'll, I'll wait. <laughs> Do you really have a flip phone? I'm yes. proud of you. That's awesome. So you don't I, text. I, you don't. I use a flip phone because I've got an I've got an iPhone, mm-hmm. and my iPhone is right here. I look at my phone for emails, and I talk on my flip phone for phone. <laughs> you can get you some headphones for that. You can do. All right. No, awesome. I'm, 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 I'm hearing impaired. Sure. sure and yeah, yeah. the shape works. Okay. Okay. What's next? <laughs> next question. Let it go. What's yeah. next? Um, uh, so, you know, as you started to phase out, of course, Chris started getting more and more involved. If he had, if there was no sort of heir to the, to the, to the racing side of life, would the team have, have gone away? Interesting question. Um, I think maybe, maybe it would have tailed off a little. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened was that we had a good year. We were doing some good year tire testing, and we had both cars. We were going to race at Watkins Glen. In those days, you could just go up and test, and then we raced. And Chris came up. Chris had been running a spec racer Ford. Yeah. And Elliot said, why don't we have Chris, let, let Chris go out in our car just to see what it's like to drive. And had he from childhood on always had an interest in, in the racing? No. Chris okay. was just, well, yeah, he had always come to the races with right. my dad. I mean, there are a lot of pictures of he and I and Victory Lane. Yeah. A positive reinforcement. Yeah. You know, um, standing on a podium um, in my arms, getting interviewed and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he always came, my dad my dad and he and I would sleep in the same hotel room. It was always good fun. That's cool. And so, uh, no motorhome then. And uh, so Elliot said, look, let's put Chris in the car. Let him, let him go out. We're testing. Yeah. Let him go out and feel the car. Well, Chris got out there, and he, he, he just took to it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I said, holy <laughs> what are his times? What are his times? Yeah. And they said, 
Last year, six on the grid. I said, well, wow. So Elliot said, look, let's get him. A, let's let him run with us. <laughs> yeah. This was a six hour. Yeah. Let's yeah. let him run yeah, with us. For sure. And it was Butch and James in one car, and it was and it was me and Elliot doing the other. So hell, let's do Elliot, it. Just for those who don't know, being Elliot Forbes Robinson, who's Elliot Forbes Robinson. Elliot yeah. Forbes Robinson. Yeah. And um, and so uh, Elliot said, "Let's put him in." So we started the race. Elliot started. I got in the car. I, Chris got in next, and then I got in afterwards. And unfortunately, we had a a, a, a the main bus wire from the alternator was not charging the battery. So when I got in the car, the car started not going very fast. And then it ultimately, I said, this car is running out of power. And I kind of thought this is an electrical thing, and it's – a benign electrical thing, so I pulled into the pits. I said, can we fix it? And they checked everything over, and what we had is a split in the main bus coming from the alternator to the battery that had been, that had been, um, that that had separated underneath all the, all the heat wrap, all the heat shrink. Anyway, so, uh, but Chris did a fabulous job. And I said, holy cow, this is going to be interesting. So we actually drove a couple races, and then after that, Chris got with James, and I stayed with Elliot. Right. Yeah. Or Butch, Butch and Elliot. So and we, we haven't gotten Chris's opinion on this, but in the grand spectrum of sports dads, you know, between the the guy who's way overly brutal and the guy who's maybe overly supportive, where do you, where do you think you fell? Well, it's funny. I had a <laughs> – I was on a board of uh, International Speedway Corporation then. Yeah. Heard of it. And I was down at I was down, yeah right I was down at Daytona and they invited me to come on over they were going to do some aero they want to do some aero work on the cars so uh, so uh, Bill said Rob why don't you go on over there with uh, with a couple of guys and and uh, Gary Nelson said come on and so I went over seeing that you know I don't know what the sports car and so I sat down and you know all these guys were there including Dale Senior who I sort of knew but not well. And I sat down with him, and, and I, it was ironic. I said, you know, so I pulled him aside. I said, Dale, can I spend a minute with you? I said, my son's thinking of getting into racing. And how do you handle it? He says, well, the best thing you can do is make sure that they have the best equipment. Because that way, if they don't do well, it's because of them, not the equipment. He says, you should run them. That's what I'm doing with my kids. I'm running them. You run them. But get them the best equipment. Make sure that they've got good stuff. And that's what we did. So as far as me being, did I, did I want him to do it? Did I encourage it? Gosh, Chris, you got to do this. Yeah. No. Not ever. He was a stick and ball guy. Stick and ball guy. Four letter, you know, lettered right. four years in high school in basketball, four years in high school in baseball. But he also wouldn't have been the guy at the go-kart track. He'd be like, if you spin, I'm burning a stuffed animal. Yeah, that's right. Like, there that's was none right. of that. That's right. No, no. In, okay. fact, in fact, he started, he was doing some go-kart stuff, um, kind of surreptitiously, really, with one couple of the guys in a shop when he was about 14 or 15, running at a local, we had a local dirt track. Now paved, and uh, he was running out there, and so I finally decided to go on out and see what was going on because I saw the carts in the track and the and the truck in the in the shop, and uh, Matt Charlin, who does all our body work, and is the guy uh, with the mustache. Yeah, yeah, he's awesome in a go kart. Matt, <laughs> yeah. uh, Matt uh, decided. Well, you know, Chris wanted to get into it, so they ran two go karts, 
and Matt would run once, and then Chris would run. They'd alternate. And so I went to the track, and I'm seeing, Matt, who's in that? Chris. <laughs> so I said, oh, okay. So then he started getting the bug, but he still kept on going with his. Uh, with everything. Uh, with but his, you strike me as the dad that was just standing by the fence watching, staying out of it. I don't think he ever got in a fight with a flagger or got kicked yeah, out of the track. I, I, I did not want. I didn't get into business and running the family business because I was forced to. I wanted to do it. Life is too short. You think of all the people that try to get into Harvard because dad went to Harvard or grandpa and dad or great grandpa, grandpa and dad, and they don't get in and their lives are destroyed because they didn't get into Harvard. You see that all the time or what name the school and, you know, all of this stuff. And my, for instance, my, my, uh, my uh, dad, I remember an interaction my dad had with a guy, with a, with a friend of his. And I want to introduce you to my sons. This is my oldest, John. This is Rob. And this is Pete. So the guy says, oh, there's no Charles Jr.? He says, no, that's not the way this family works. And I remembered that even when I was a kid hearing that, that it was no Charles Henry Dyson III or the first, or whatever he was. And that stuck with me. And that kind of idea, that's not the way the family works. I thought that was a great answer to this guy. So the last 20 years of sports car racing has been a lot different than, I'd say, the golden era of your time there. What do you? What's your take on the current state of sports car racing and kind of what it's evolved into? Well, I think it's a, it's a couple of things. I think that, that uh, the, the, I think there are two things that are really unnecessary, and why it evolved to this is unnecessary. The first one is closing the pits. Okay. Oh, that's the pits during a yellow, you mean? Should never, ever be closed. Okay. The exit can be. Okay. But the entrance to the pits should never be closed. So you feel if there's a yellow flag, there is no such thing as. Close pits. The, old, the old adage was, if a guy pits, he's doing something to his car that he has to do in order to keep it out on the racetrack. <laughs> Nobody comes into the pits willingly. Right. Even drivers that are running, you kind of hate, if you're really doing well, you kind of hate to break it and either give up the seat or you got to get, you got to stop, stop the fun. Right, right. It should never be closed. The pits should never be closed. Okay. That's... One of the big problems that I've had. Okay. And you can win or lose a lot of races by not getting into the pits strategically mm-hmm. correctly. Mm-hmm. And when the yellow, nowadays, they've baked it into it. Yeah. That, you know, <laughs> the big cars pit first. Yep. Then the small cars. So on the restarts, when you run the restarts, you're racing against all of the, the DPIs. Sure. Or the GTO cars around the, you know, the GTDs are all running the GTD cars. Right, right. The art of multi-class racing is on a restart, getting around and going through traffic of cars that are significantly slower than your car. Right. That's the first thing. The other thing that I, uh, it's inexplicable to me, driver rankings. I'm just going to shake your hand, sir. I just, I just, I just don't understand it. I, I just don't understand it. And I, I not, look, when I stepped up to running a GTO Pontiac and then running in a Trans Am. I was clearly an amateur. Clearly. I mean, I just finished running Club Race. 
So, right, <laughs> I'm, run, I'm running against the big guys. Yeah, yeah. And like, and and when and when when I got into the Porsche, who was I running against? Derek Bell. Yeah, Derek Bell and Hurley Klaus, Haywood. And Klaus yeah. Ludwig. Yeah. Hurley, Tullius. Um, but Jochen Moss, Holbert. Yeah, I, I was unclear as to why why their driver rankings, and I'm not sure what the point is. Yeah, right. Well, so it, you're the first sort of, for lack of a better expression, gentleman driver from that era that we've had. Yeah, on. we've had plenty of people that were around those guys. Sure. But like when you look at you or an Al Holbert or definitely most prolific Bob Aiken. Yeah. Um, so guys like you and Aiken, did you ever once complain that it was unfair? No, that was the way you played it. Yeah. What I thought was what I what I thought it was. I thought it was stupid for people. The Leon brothers is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. The Leon brothers, two brothers, twin brothers, made a lot of money in real estate. They bought a March. Yeah. And they ran an IMSA. They had a car that was colored pink. Yeah. Which kind of disturbed me. Anyway, <laughs> I asked this guy in a driver's meeting as we were coming out of the driver's meeting. I should say, what other cars have you got? I've never heard of you guys. What what other cars? What kind of cars did you guys race before you got this thing? And one of them said, "Don't." I've never driven any other car other than this. <laughs> and they were known as the Chicane Brothers because they were right. so slow. Right. But right. they were impressing their girlfriends. But they were the, sure. I mean, that was insane. Why they were in that car allowed oh. on the racetrack? Yeah. That was surprising. Yeah. Right. But you were saying something. Oh no no so show. so the then this isn't my argument. I'm just sort of saying why it exists. The the argument right now in favor of driver rankings uh, comes from teams who claim that they can't sell seats. So like Will, and this isn't Will's argument, but a Will Turner kind of operation. For example, he's running two cars um, right now. Yeah. <laughs> a, a, a arrive and drive team owner will claim that it's he can't sell a seat because of the expense because it's hard to sell a seat when a guy knows he's not going to finish better than ninth or something like that. Was that ever a problem for you to write the proverbial check knowing that you Rob Dyson the driver would be up against these all pro lineups and it it's going to be a challenge what's the point of doing it if it isn't a challenge yeah so you you don't think I can appreciate arguing, I can <laughs> I can appreciate their argument right in light of that don't race in that series race in a series where where everybody gets the same color ribbon mhm mhm yeah so, so basically, you know, if 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 if, if you if, if it's like Alvin Springer said to me when I first got into the Porsche down at at uh, at uh, down in Savannah, he said, "Rob, let me just tell you one thing. When you're running against the big boys, you got to lift your leg a little higher." <laughs> there it is, uh, yeah. and that's that's just the way it is. Now, when I first started. In the 962, I was being passed a lot. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's that's the way it is in every form of racing. Right. You know, Gasly didn't do too well in uh, with the Red Bull. Now he's running up front, but it took him three or four races to get used to it. Sure. Right. Okay. Yeah. Fine. But I I I I just don't. If if that's the argument that look, um, you know, I can't sell a ride to a guy. That knows he's going to finish ninth. Okay, so you got to be driver ranked. So what are you doing? You're running against bad drivers that are just like you, that are bad drivers. That's so then literally you the argument in favor of driver so ranking. The, so, yeah, do, yeah. so do you all finish the same? You all finish the same place. The idea is that you're trying to sell against guys who are equally bad. 
I, again, not my contention, but that is that is the the logic behind the system. I I think at this point it's it's complicated. I I I don't know. I mean, I if if that's the rationale for it, yeah. um, I I I don't know what the answer is. I just can't. I just don't under I just don't understand it, especially when you see, um, Stefan Johansson, who is a great friend. McLaren Formula One, two or three time winner Le Mans. Indy 500, five or six times, finishing top 10 four or five times. Yeah. This guy's a real race winner. It's like 75 F1 starts. He's called a a gold driver. Or no, a, no, he's a silver. He's now a bronze. Is he a bronze? Yeah, he's the lowest age. level of possible ranking in professional motorsports. I mean, are you kidding like me? Like he yeah. just showed up from he, a racing school. Are, yeah. are you kidding me? I think he's bronze. Is that what his rating is? Yeah, he's he's bronze because of oh. age. Okay, yeah. good. I got news for you. I would hire him. If I've got to fill a seat with a gold driver or a bronze or whatever color he is, yeah. <laughs> I'd put him in. Right. Even in his debilitated state. I mean, he's, 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 <laughs> not the, no, no, yeah, you know, just yeah, kidding. Yeah, yeah. We got it. I mean, that guy I know yeah. can outdrive everybody that's in that category. Sure, yeah. yeah. Well, but yeah. but so, that's that's what makes it so preposterous. Right, right. What I can't figure out is, like I said, that's that's the funny thing. I mean, yeah. Stefan Johansson is at the lowest level. Right. How's that possible? This guy's forgotten more how to right. drive a race right. car than most people yeah. know. Yeah. And and that's that's what makes it so preposterous. Frankly, frankly, I don't I don't care what happens in Europe. Sure. Yeah. No. Well, agreed. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. I could care, and yeah. I I don't understand. Right. But if if that's what it takes for a guy to fund his business, that it has to be. Uh, uh, I I just I don't have an answer to it. Sure. Right. Or now, I I don't it. I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer to the guy that says, I've got to run a race team, and I've got to have this in order to be able to fund my race team. Right. I I just I can't relate to that business model. Sure, sure. I just can't relate to that business model. Mm-hmm. I moved up not because I wanted to be – I got into racing because I think it's mentally, physically, and emotionally demanding. I got into it because I wanted to thread the needle. Right. And I wanted to run against guys that were really good. That's and part of the sale. when you're running against a – a, a a Derek Bell or a Brian Redman, when you're running against guys like that, or a Price Cobb or a James Weaver, when you're running against guys like that, and you do well or even beat them, yes, that's a win. That's a huge opportunity. Yeah. yeah, that's part of it. I won two big races, two or three big races, mm-hmm. running against the big boys. Right, for sure. right. How Great. Good, that's good it. For, yeah, yeah. That's it. Good, yeah. good for me. Yeah. But that's the way it works. And I that's why I can't figure out. Now, yeah. do I have a problem with, with a racing organizations saying, look, if you're going to do this, you got to show some level of competence at lower right. at lower classes of racing. Mm-hmm. That I appreciate. Yeah. Because there are a lot of guys, I see this, and that's one of the reasons why I don't do vintage car racing. Mm-hmm. Vintage car racing, you have a lot of guys that have spent huge money mm-hmm. running cars and running cars that are significantly more powerful, 962s, for instance, right. significantly more powerful than, when, than, than when we were running them, when we were the state of the art. They're running cars that are significantly more powerful. But the other thing was is that they were, they, is that they were um, they're guys that clearly are putting themselves and a lot of other people at risk because right. the cars are old, 
They are not state of the art by any means. Yeah. And that's that's that that to me is an issue. Vintage car race. That's why I don't do it. I don't do it. Yeah. So a season of IMSA, because I, I also look at the driver rankings thing as more of a symptom than the actual fundamental problem. Yeah. A season of IMSA in, let's say, 1986 or the 962 ballpark, what would you say you spent for a one-car program? Oh, Jesus. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe $200,000. <laughs> Holy crap. I didn't expect it was that low. I thought it was maybe two, a million. 200000 200, 200, And you did most of your own repairs, right? So you had we like, did our own stuff. Yeah. Right, yeah, right. Because, you, because you could. You didn't and have to and buy it. it was a big thing. Right. Yeah, you're allowed to. But you could service it. You didn't have to buy all your parts off the Porsche truck because of some weird homologation. Okay. Yeah. Um, so 200K. $200,000, i am not savvy enough to convert that to 2019 inflation, but... An equivalent. I'm of gonna look it up. Okay, yeah. let's say it. We did a lot. We did a lot of our own work. Right. Understand that. So we had our own package, but I mean, you know, I'm mean, talking actually running the cars. I mean, that wasn't all the overhead of the trucks and the guys and all that. Right. But it probably. I, mean, I, I imagine when you get all done, said and done, it would probably would have been about seven, eight hundred thousand dollars a year, maybe. Oh, well, that's yeah. a big jump from two hundred. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, yeah. That'd be right. Uh, That'd be about right. Okay, but that's. I never f- thought about it. Yeah. I never thought about it. That's I, the full I, big class. That's right. No, no, but, I, yeah, but that's yeah. what I'm trying to go with it. So in 86, so you're sending somewhere between two to 700K. We'll call it 600. In, yeah, 600. Let's, uh, so inflation-wise, let's say it's one and a half, two million dollars at today's rate, right? It's let's, about a million bucks. About a million bucks at yeah. today's, today's yeah. exchange to in, in 2019. Class. What do you, th- I mean, just genuinely, what do you think a season of GTD, the, the small boys class in the big series? In IMSA. In IMSA. GTD? What do you think a season of GTD costs? I don't know enough about it. Take a guess. Nowadays, it probably cost you about uh, probably a minimum of eight hundred grand. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, that's adorable. Currently looking higher. at is it higher? three plus about oh, three point one million dollars yeah. right now for three a GTD plus. car, for one car three to plus. run an IMSA and yeah. the smallest class of the main show, three point one million dollars for no fans to watch it. Yeah. Does that include acquiring the car? Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, plus. that yeah. makes that makes well, the car's only half a million bucks, so it's that still two point five. That, that's right. That, yeah. Right. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying. So three plus to do the whole year, including the car. Yeah. Why does it um, cost so much money? <laughs> well, there's, we don't. That's. Are you here for two more four, hours? Four, <laughs> you can explain the allegations. No, I yeah. think. Look, <laughs> if, look, it's it's the old thing. Um, Chris Economaki used to say, you know, racing is costing itself out of existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To which I say, Chris, if you want to dance, you got to pay the fiddler. For sure. And that's the way it works. But and that's kind of the way you got to look at it. And if you want to run, and you want to run. The top classes in racing, yeah. you're going to have to, you or somebody's going to have to pay up. Well, but here's, here's what, I agree with you, but here's the other side of this argument. And, th- and this is where it's unfortunately a far more complicated problem than there is a solution. I would argue, and, and, and Ryan, I think you agree with me on this, that selling somebody to finish ninth at a million dollars but still get to run Sebring and Daytona and run against Andy Lally and mm-hmm. Jerome Bleakmull, and people will pay a million, million five to go do that. When, but there's this magical threshold that when you start getting to three plus, <laughs> that pool of disposable income to go play race car driver becomes a lot smaller. And now saying you're going to spend this much and you're going to finish ninth becomes a much harder sell. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like when you go to gamble at uh, at, at Las Vegas. There's yeah. a $2 table and there's a $10 table and right. there's a $50 table. Right. And, you know, uh, you, you go where you can, right. where you can but, afford it. But that's what I'm saying. Would there have been a cost threshold? Like let's say you did a season in '86 for 600k. If at that time that number became 1.5 million in 1986, knowing that there are very competitive drivers out there, would you would it eventually be a point where you're like, eh, I just it's not worth it to me? 
I can't can't relate to it. Sure. Uh, we, we, I think, uh, our team, the way we ran it, the way Smitty ran it day to day, I think we got more out of our racing dollars than most race teams. Factory or not, we got more out of our racing dollar. We ran a very tight ship. We had good, loyal guys. Mm-hmm. They were all local. All of our guys are local. We didn't have any. We had flying guys occasionally that were that were you know they were various places. Some of them were. Hey, I know a guy that you you know he's a good friend of mine. I was in I was in Vietnam with him. Can we bring him? Yeah, right, all right, right, good, right. Give him a rag if he knows what he's doing. Let him do more. Yeah, right. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so it, we we ran like I said we ran a lot of races with the same five guys, same pit equipment, two cars in the same truck. Mm-hmm. Of course, in those days you could. Yeah. Nowadays the cars are. Highly complex. One of the big, big topics in sports car racing right now and growing every day, it seems like, is balance of performance. <laughs> and I am of the opinion that there's been a balance of performance in place for a long time. It just wasn't as public and it wasn't as drastic and common. Where you Didn't know, change race to race. Yeah, it definitely wasn't race to race. And I think if you look at it, you'd see some of the cars you raced against, you guys had to make some big adjustments to stay competitive with. What, what's your opinion on balance of performance? Well, here's here's BOP. In the old days, um, there were gross changes. Mm-hmm. You had weight, yeah, and restrictors. Right, right. That's how you did it. What was the criteria for it? Just and general. weight, weight and restrictors. So you could adjust to weight. Mm-hmm. Same. Add forty pounds. Take off forty pounds. Tighter restrictor, bigger restrictor. Okay. Because they couldn't measure everything. Right. It's Nowadays, of, yeah. with uh, the way BOP, they can measure everything. Think about all of the data that they can accumulate. Fuel flow. Mm-hmm. Cam time. Yeah, right. Everything. Compression. Um, Airflow. Uh, yeah, sure. All the fuel used, all of that stuff. So when you were running 962s, was there restrictors and weight changes for you guys? To Occasionally keep it? there were, yeah. Okay, so BOP. And, and if they put weight on the Porsches or... We all complained to John Bishop. John, these cars were designed to be lighter, and this right. is putting the suspension at risk. Okay. And then John would say, right, boys. Yeah. Figure it out. Sure. Or when the Nissan showed up, mm-hmm. uh, they had to put ever bigger restrictor, ever smaller restrictors on their engines because they were, but, you know, you turn the wick up or they right. redesign the inlet or you redesign the plenum or whatever. So to the current sports car fan, probably in the GTLM class, because that seems to be the most topical one, BOP's been around since the 80s. So this, like, you guys are ruining racing is it's not necessary. Stuff. It's always been around. Yeah, yeah. Right. It has to be around. Yeah. Yeah. See, the thing that Penske did with the, with the turbo, uh, with the turbo Porsches that came up mm-hmm. in, in the Can-Am, which killed the Can-Am. Right. Um, it was the fact that uh, he came in with turbocharging and right. they didn't know how to regulate it. Sure. It became like an arms race. race. Nowadays, nowadays, they do regulate yes. it. Yes. Yes. So, because why? They can measure all of the different increments that happen to it. So it's a necessary evil is what it sounds I like. I think you have, to, you have right. to have it. The problem that I have with it is every week. Yeah, oh, 100% with yeah, you. Yeah, that's a Write a better rule book yeah. is my take on it. Every like, week? Yeah. But they can do it, and they can do it because they can measure it. Right. So they can really nail it. What does that do? <laughs> it makes it uh, makes it a little more difficult to get any any edge on it, right? 
I think then what you have is you have endless complaining. Yes. After, whether, whether you win a race or you lose a race, you got to line up mm-hmm. to make sure you, they're not going to knock you back. The other guys are saying, I want to move forward and knock him back. So it makes it harder for the regulators, but it's because they can measure everything. Yes. So I know you got to go, and we got some. We got a, a couple right. of closeout yeah. things we got to do. What um, other things? Okay. Got <laughs> uh, I just said real quick. Did you? So was politicking the media with balance of performance in the '80s part of it? Because my my whole thing is BOP has to exist. We all agree on that. But it's actually that we were making it so available to the public. That's part of the problem because the public doesn't necessarily you can't expect them to understand everything going into it so you're turning them off to the sport because you're making it appear rigged i mean come on do you have to disclose what you're doing exactly well, that's, what I'm saying. that's what we say so like, we say if, it should if you don't I have mean, a hard card i don't think you should be access to it i yeah. mean come on yeah so I mean, but you but, know look you know there's a technical end to racing and that's it yeah right and what are you going to do you're going to sit and say hey this is what we're this is what we're looking at yeah Right. I just think it's unnecessary. I so, think, you know, what is it, full the, disclosure? Yeah. <laughs> so if there was a, 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 a weight added to the 962 that you didn't like, you'd go to Bishop and say, this is what we need changed. You wouldn't call Paul Fanner or somebody on track at the time or Correct. whatever. Right. Okay. Yeah. John Bishop would say to you, oh, you went to Fanner? Yeah. 60 pounds. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. 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 No, that's that's that yeah. Big Boys Club. Anything else, guys? Uh, I just wanted to say thank you because uh, I, I literally texted my mom last night. I was like, can you send me the pictures of me and James Weaver in the Dyson cars? So this is a terrible photo of a photo, so don't be too hard on it. But that's a picture I took at Red Atlanta when I was like 11 years old. Oh, my because goodness. Right I was through like, the fence. Yeah, I'm like, I'm hanging on the fence. I'm probably the only 11-year-old kid there by himself because my dad's working. That was working. John Paul in That's the John car. Paul Jr., exactly John right. John Paul in the car. Yep. Right. And then uh, this other photo that there I There were the I most drivers winning the Daytona 24 hours in history. Yeah, on one car, right? Seven guys. So, and Rolex watch company said no more. So this is kind of being a pain. But basically, that's me and James Weaver. Again, I'm 11 years old. I'm wearing a Reynard T-shirt because well, that's what's up. Because <laughs> I was that kid. And, and right it, behind it, you, yes, yes, I'm shunning Butch Lightzinger and Pat Smith. Pat Smith. Because <laughs> I'm like, I want to get a picture with James Weaver. So. My whole career, I wanted to be a, a Dyson driver. You know what I mean? I had the poster where it was like all of you guys, like with the headshots on it, Dorsey and you and the whole thing. And what I no didn't more realize. No more potatoes, Brian. That's right. I got to cut back. One of the things that uh, it kind of goes in line with this is that I didn't know that Rob Dyson was a businessman when I was a kid going to these races. And I would say I was probably a pretty educated kid on the sport. You were just a race car driver to me. So in this kind of epiphany of like gentlemen drivers need this or that because it's not fair, I still to this day, I'm like Rob Dyson showed up and brought the best. And he was competitive and he tried his best to do that. You know, so you're a big inspiration for me. Some people have told me that I was unique. That a guy that got out of his business suit, put on a driving suit and won a bunch of races – in the height of the GTP era, when the best of the best in the world were coming over, mm-hmm. was unique. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So. So that means you've got to make everybody else start to take a back seat because they're they're a gold driver or a bronze right, driver. Right. I just. I just did what I did, and I don't claim any supernatural powers. I think I had a little bit more mechanical ability than anybody, I think, because of driving old cars and right. tractors on muddy muddy roads and with farm equipment behind it. Maybe I had a little bit better feel for how the dynamics of what a mass is doing on tires. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe that's part of it. So what? Yeah. So what? So I raced against Mario Andretti and maybe beat him. Right. Okay. Yeah. You signed up. You're ready to go. That's exactly right. So... 
and closing, <laughs> we have but, a lot but of I, but we I, agree on. But I will tell you. Okay. I will tell you that 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 my 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 experience in racing. If I could do it all over again, there's not really much I would change. Good. Yeah, that's excellent. Who can? Not everybody gets to say that. There's not really much I would change. It was a wonderful. And still is a wonderful experience. We're still doing racing. Yeah. And who knows what will happen next year. Right. Or the year after. But I still, every time I drive through the gate, when I went over to Lime Rock on Saturday just to visit everybody, yeah. when I drove through that gate, my heart picked up a little. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Dyson Racing still around. I mean, you guys have a whole collection of vintage cars and all kinds of things. We do. We yeah. do. And yeah. uh, the guys are busy working on them, too. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So we know you got to get going. Uh, so uh, yeah. you got enough. You got yeah. enough material there, guys. I'd yeah. say. Uh, go ahead. Continental's got the check. Yeah. I got it real quick. Is this your lovely wife? No, this is Dawn, my secretary. Okay, Hello, Dawn, Dawn, your secretary. Years. And she's going to give you a ride somewhere right now, yes, right? Yes, she is. And what kind of car does she drive? It's a lovely. What do you drive? An Acura. RDX. RDX. It's parked right here. Yeah, right yeah. And they're one of our sponsors on the show. So I was really excited when I saw an RDX yeah. pull up. Yeah. So how do you like it? You love it. Exactly. Right. Right. Cool. Thank you, sir. Got to go. Appreciate right. it, guys. Thank yeah. you very You're much. And that was Rob Dyson. Also, shout out to Chris Dyson, who helped make this happen. And hopefully this met the expectations of Jim Wynn, Lance Snyder, and Mike Adamanchuk, who all suggested we uh, sit down with them when the opportunity presented itself. We will close this one out with a a song by the TVC called Hello. You can find this on musicbed.com. I'm seeing pretty things, living out my dreams, shooting.